Welcome to Thriving Through Menopause, where we talk about this time of life, mind, body, and spirit. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen. Each week, I'm joined by top professionals dropping their tips and advice. Remember, episodes drop every Tuesday. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a beat. And if you like this podcast, please rate and review it. Thank you, because this helps others to find the show. You can check out our website, find out which episodes are coming up, and get the latest blog and advice by going to my website, thrivethroughmenopause.com, and get ready to thrive, not just survive, through perimenopause and beyond. Welcome to this week's episode of Thriving Through Menopause. I'm your host, Clarissa Christensen. If you are new to this show, I am so glad you found us. And if you're one of my regular listeners, thank you. I appreciate you. We have got a wonderful conversation on integrative medicine today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Jessica Weiser-McCartney from New York. Welcome, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me, Claire. It is my pleasure. I'll just tell the audience a little bit about you, and then we will go into your story and where you are with your approach and your work with menopausal women. I mean, you are a clinician. You've been obviously classically trained at one stage. You have 20 years clinical experience. And then you've moved more into the integrative space. And last year, you opened your clinic in New York. And it is an integrative medicine practice. And I love that as well as clinicians, you have mindfulness instructors, Reiki practitioners, acupuncturists, nutritionists, and so much more working to support your patients that include menopausal women. Jessica, where did this move towards integrative medicine begin for you? We were chatting a little bit before we, we went on the air, and I, I so wish that integrative medicine was not looked at as exclusive of traditional or classic medicine, because in my mind, they should be one of the same. As you said, I've been practicing for a long time, and over years and years of taking care of both men and women, particularly women at um, various stages in their life cycle, what I have realized or I continuously observed is that we were failing women in the traditional space and that this approach of looking at patients in terms of just their organ systems, their stomach, their brain, their, their, car their cardiac issues or palpitations wasn't working for a lot of women. And so I really decided to go back and take a deep dive. And as you said, I, I trained in integrative medicine late in my career, 20 years into my career, I went back and did a fellowship so that I could really address women and men medical concerns from a much more holistic way. And my feeling is always lifestyle first. So uh, I think traditionally we're trained to rely on pharmaceuticals first, in part because we don't have the language or the skills to help guide patients to make lifestyle better lifestyle choices. And I just didn't feel that approach was resonating with my patients or serving them well. No, I think, and I think that's interesting because I'm a Chinese medicine practitioner and originally that was always lifestyle first, then herbal medicine, then a more acupuncture intervention. So it's right. a bit like going back to 
maybe where a lot of early medicine practices began and even Hippocrates with his let food be thy medicine quote. Absolutely. And I say this all day long to dismiss a practice that has been around for thousands of years. West Traditional Western medicine hasn't been around very long. And so while I think there have been amazing developments and amazing pharmaceuticals that have changed so many people's experience with health, I think to dismiss mindfulness, nutrition, acupuncture, Reiki is just irresponsible. Yeah. And, but, and particularly, I think, because menopausal symptoms, as we may talk about, often benefit greatly from a lifestyle intervention. And there's no risk. What I say to patients when they sit down is, nobody has ever said to me, I changed my diet and I'm following a, a whole bones, plant-based diet, or I meditate daily and I feel worse. There's no risk associated with making positive lifestyle changes. And as we'll discuss when we discuss pharmaceutical interventions, I think pharmaceutical interventions for menopause can be incredibly helpful, but there is no such thing as a prescription medication without a risk. No, and I think that's becoming quite clear. We've seen a lot more conversation in the media recently about clinical intervention and the issues. And I see a big debate happening, not just in the menopause world, but in the mental health space too, where a lot of clinicians are really questioning, what are we doing here? Absolutely. I just do not think that we continue to use, can continue to use prescription medications as our first line intervention. As I said, I use medication, prescription medication and herbal medication all day long but it is never my first step. I think the best example I can give was a big study that was done earlier this year comparing one of the SSRIs to a mindfulness practice that showed equal benefit yeah. for patients with mild anxiety with daily meditation versus prescription medication. And again, where's the downside of a daily meditative practice? There is none, but plenty of people take SSRIs and develop side effects. Aren't we reading now that about, I think it was 57% of women in the UK are on some form of antidepressant. And mindfulness has, I think, fallen away a bit from popular conversation. I trained 10 years ago as a mindfulness practitioner, and I don't see the same traction anymore among people, which is a great pity. It's a huge pity. And I think part of it is that clinicians don't feel comfortable training patient practice. I mean, we have a dedicated mindfulness educator in our practice. It only takes about 20 minutes and then you can send patients on their way with a recording. But I think we don't have the language. We certainly aren't teaching it in medical education. And it's unfortunate. It's such an empowering thing for a patient to be able to feel that they have some control over their physiologic response to stress or anxiety and to not teach them skills. And we should, in my opinion, you should be teaching in grade school. Oh, absolutely. I think that should be coming through all the way as part of the way we live. And I think also we have obviously a lot of stress at this time. If we're talking about menopausal women, what do you observe in your clinic? I think it's so complicated because it's not just a time of hormonal change, but for many women, it's a, it's a time of personal change. For many women, it's a, it may be a point in their career where they're making decisions about what the next phase is. Many women have children that are graduating and going on to college or doing other things, so they're struggling with empty nest. It is, there, there are so many complicated barriers at this transition period. And I think 
both emotional and physical support are so critical for women going through hormonal and personal change at the midlife. Yeah, because it is a time of there's a lot of stress and a lot of, I think, being pulled. And I think we have, in addition to that, aging parents, which we're beginning to talk more about. And it may not be possibly caring for those patients at home or things like that, but we may have to organize care homes or those sort of things. They're very stressful. And I think we also don't really talk to women about what what menopause really represents for them. It's a, a time where you have to acknowledge the loss of your fertility. It's a time where libido changes and there's a, a change in how you feel about yourself sexually. So it's so incredibly complicated. And I think to ignore those emotional stressors is problematic. Yeah. And I like that you've chosen mindfulness. You went through that route as opposed to, as we see North American Menopause Society or the British one, really advocating cognitive behavioral therapy. Interesting. I'm just interested as to why. I think the difference is that mindfulness gives you the, puts the ball in your court and it gives you some control. And we actually teach mindfulness with a heart rate variability monitor. We use an app called HeartMath so that patients can see the physiologic change that happens when they're in a mindful space so that they can see that they're eliciting a rest and relaxation or a parasympathetic response. And it's amazing how much more likely people are to buy in when they can see that they have some control over their autonomic nervous system. I think yeah, cognitive behavioral therapy is wonderful, but it can be very expensive. It's very time consuming and you have to find a provider. Whereas mindfulness, you can self-teach, you can be taught in 30 minutes and then you have control. Yeah. And and I think that is different. Yes, CBT can be really a great tool if your behavior really needs to change there's no doubt but when we look at your right in heart math what a wonderful tool I think I came across it a good eight nine years ago and I just think it's a wonderful way I think as you said to visually represent where we are it is I, I think you can tell patients that they have some control over those physiologic responses that that sympathetic response but it's very hard we've been so hard to live in a fight or flight or a sympathetic state, then it, it, there's almost this perception that you have no control or that it happens to you. And I think when people can actually see the hard data, that they actually can regulate their heart rate response, that they can regulate their breath, that they can re- maybe even engage in a mindfulness practice when they're having a hot flash, yeah. then it's much more likely that they will commit to the practice. People like data. They like information. And I think what HeartMath does, and I certainly think you can meditate without it, is it really allows the skeptic to see, yeah. okay, this is actually doing something. Yeah. And it's concrete. And it's a sense that you also feel it in yourself, but you're actually seeing, oh, look what's happening and look what's happening and changing over time as they commit right. to a practice and diet of course is a huge part you have nutritionists in there what kind of dietary advice are you generally giving and then there's obviously very specific advice over on top of that yeah so i would say my nutritional advice is pretty consistent across across decades of life and across the genders which is keep it clean that we should be eating whole foods and what i say to patients is if it grows in the ground it grows on a tree, it freely roams the earth, or it swims in a body of water. You should eat it, and if it comes in a package or it's in the shape of a Dorito, it should not be something that you eat. I think processed foods and refined sugar, fine carbohydrates, 
particularly for perimenopausal and menopausal women, but for all patients, extremely problematic. And you know that, while there is not a huge body of literature data looking at this, I will tell you for my menopausal patients, this is 100% consistent. <laughs> women who eat sugar, particularly at night, or, con- or who consume alcohol, particularly at night, complain of more hot flashes because they get a nice sugar spike two, an hour and a half, two hours later. And the next thing that happens is an insulin spike yes. and adrenaline and cortisol go up mm-hmm. and you wake up and feel uncomfortable. Absolutely. Without doubt. And of course, there's the risk of insulin resistance, isn't there? Which is... We, we know that women become more insulin resistant as they approach menopause. And actually, they tend to be more insulin resistant late in the day. So those refined carbohydrates that you take in at five, six, or seven o'clock at night are going to cause more issues for insulin surges for weight and for hot flashes than earlier in the day. Yeah. And I think that's particularly true that uh, I think my experience, and I'm sure yours, is a lot of women run on empty through the morning. They've skipped a breakfast, they've skipped or gone for some small salad, which hasn't got a lot of nutrient density to it. Come three o'clock in the afternoon, we're starting to feel very tired. We get home, we've had sugar, carbohydrate-laden dinner, alcohol, as you say, can play a big role. And then, yes, the results in the night is uh, increased hot flashes, waking up at night, um, yes. and weight, and weight gain. And weight gain. The biggest complaint I see is women complain about weight around their middle yeah. in the years as they approach menopause. And that is weight that you put on around your middle is indicative of insulin resistance, of insulin surges. So sometimes what I'll do is I'll put a continuous glucose monitor on a patient and just say to them, wear it for 10 days and play around with your diet. See what happens when you eat the candy bar at 7 p.m. and have a glass of wine. It's important to see that blood sugar spike at 10 or 11 yeah. o'clock at night. Because most people don't feel well when their blood sugar is 160, 170. That, and that's huge. And that really happens a lot, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. It does. It's almost this reward for I was virtuous during the day and I ate well. And now I'm going to come home and carb load and reward myself for a long day's work. And the consequences, you feel really lousy. Yeah. And I think that a lot of women do complain of sleep disruption and they're really struggling. And, and I'm sure I know that diet plays a significant role in quality sleep, which can yes. be disrupted by hot flashes, of course, night sweats, it can be. But I think a lot of it is sleep, is diet and sleep interactions. Yes. And I would say I see this in both men and women. So I don't think it's unique to menopause. As you said, we are not meant to digest food while we're sleeping. I often see a patient the cavemen did not eat once it was dark out. We don't eat calories at eight o'clock at night. So three hours prior to bedtime, the only thing you should be consuming is water or herbal tea. But we should not be actively digesting when we sleep. Digestion generates a lot of energy, a lot of heat, obviously more hot flushes, but a lot of sleep disruption. Yeah. And the liver's working pretty hard then at that time as well, which contributes to other feelings of just not feeling well, a kind of a sluggishness. In the body. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think the other thing I've seen in the last few years is more and more people have become interested in time-restricted eating, which I think can be very helpful for weight management and for menopause. But the biggest mistake I see 
Patients don't eat until noon and they eat between noon and 8 p.m. Time-restricted eating is meant to be done early in the day with a strict cutoff early in the evening. And I say to patients, if you're going to eat between 1 and nine, one p.m. and 9 p.m., you might as well not time-restrict because taking in all of your calories late in the day is more problematic than distributing them over a longer yeah. period of time. And that's why I think there's a lot of interest in 12 and 12. So you start your breakfast at sort of... 12, 7 in the morning and you've finished eating by 7 in the evening. So you've probably had those three hours before people go to bed. But I'm amazed at how many people interpret that this as skip breakfast and just eat a big lunch and a big dinner, which is the antithesis of what it was intended to do. Absolutely. It was intended to look more like a cave person's pattern. (laughs) Yes, indeed. But breakfast is skipping is an issue, isn't it, for a lot of women or for a lot of people actually yes and intuitively this makes sense we need energy we need calories when we're active and exercising and moving around and working we don't need them just in front of the television at nine o'clock at night you're if you're gonna skip a meal the meal to skip is dinner yeah or make it quite small correct yes for our particularly for our patients who are peri postmenopausal we often say make dinner lots of veggies and a protein and watch the carbohydrates in the evening because of this heightened insulin resistance that happens late in the day, particularly around the time of menopause. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I was just reading the Blue Zone cookbook, which is a lovely cookbook to my listeners, beautiful cookbook. And there was just the highlight that we eat seven grams of sugar is what the people in the Blue Zones eat a day. And the average American eats about 22 grams. I think it's higher. <laughs> I would think higher than that. Some of Sometimes I'll have somebody say to me, I I eat a sweetened yogurt for breakfast and you've just hit 20 grams by nine o'clock. Yeah. 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 And that food gets portrayed as good, doesn't it? Because it's the yogurt. Yeah. (laughs) This is, I'm proud of myself. I had a yogurt for breakfast. There's a lot of, particularly in this day, there's sugar in everything we consume. Yeah. And that's one of the problems, isn't it? In cutting back on ultra processed foods is I presume teaching people as well on labels and what to choose and what to avoid. Yeah. Yeah. It's again, it's another one I wish they started in grade school as (laughs) we're getting kids hooked on sugar pretty early. Yeah. And there's a lot of conversation about protein and upping protein in menopause. Is that part of the advice that you and your team are giving? I think most of our patients get a fair amount of protein in their diet. I'm very cognizant of protein, particularly in the years post-menopausally, because we know that men and women lose body mass, lose body muscle as they age, and protein becomes more and more important. But again, I think if you follow a whole foods-based diet, you're automatically going to get more protein. If you're eating beans and tofu and nuts and fish and chicken, and you're not getting your calories from white bread, white pasta, white rice, you're going to get more protein in your diet. You fill up on empty calories, that's when the protein, that's going to be at the expense of proteins. Generally, we say whole foods and your plate should be a green and a a complex carbohydrate and a protein, and that's it. Yeah, that's a very simple diet. You can snack on nuts, not too many, because they also have a fair bit of calories, but you can as opposed to eating a chocolate bar or a cookie. Pretzels. Pretzels are popular and chips are popular. Yeah, I think we make nutrition recommendations more complicated than they need to be. 
Yeah, I really do. I think we are animals. We're intended to eat real food, whole foods, and it is very difficult to gain 20 or 30 pounds if you're eating clean, whole. Yes. But yeah, very, actually very. And I think there's, there's some good evidence. If we look at people going back 1950s, 60s, when there wasn't as much processed food and how much leaner they looked, just look at their the sort of beach photos and where we are today. And all of yeah. that is just driven by more processed foods with more sugar particularly added. Absolutely. Not to mention the impact that it has on gut health and gut flora. The bacteria in your gut are not, the healthy bacteria in your gut do not thrive in an environment. Chemicals, processed foods, and sugar. And uh, there's very, as very interesting data now looking at the gut microbiome of patients who struggle with obesity. If you give them the gut microbiome through a fecal transplant of somebody at healthy weight, they lose weight, which is fascinating. Yeah. Absolutely. And of course, that flows through to our brain health. So we know an unhealthy gut, if you're very stressed, if you have anxiety or even brain fog, then a healthier gut is going to, again, flow through to less of those issues. 90% of our serotonin, our happy hormones are made, it is made in our gut, so not in our brain. So what you feed your gut, I always say your gut is your second brain. What you feed your gut matters in terms of mood and um, brain health. And particularly for women who are struggling with mood symptoms and brain fog or in the time of menopause, I think it's very important to think about what you're feeding that second brain. Yeah. It's all going to be because we're an integrated system. We're not separate parts, as we were talking earlier. But where does hormone therapy um, play a role in an integrative medicine practice? I think it's a really good question. And it's really interesting through the course of my career. So when I was a resident, the Women's Health Initiative, the preliminary data, the study was stopped early. And that information was released, I think, in sometime in the early, it was 2000 or 2003. That was a very large study that assumed really that all women should be on a standard protocol of hormone replacement therapy it was oral estrogen synthetic progesterone. And it was designed to show that this improved morbidity, mortality, and reduced cardiovascular events. And the study, unfortunately, was terminated early because it showed the antithesis of that. It really didn't show tremendous benefit and it showed some, although admittedly exaggerated, risk associated with hormone replacement therapy. And over the overnight, and I actually I was doing um, research uh, up at Harvard, and that, that was one of the major sites um, for uh, the study. And it, the day that this data was released, it was like you could hear a pin drop. I mean, everybody just, everything stood, stood still. Over the course of a couple of days, the entire practice of prescribing hormone replacement therapy shifted. And so gynecologists and internists who were writing prescriptions for Pro, which was primary Provera, yeah. all of their patients, all of a sudden called their patients and said, get off of it. It's bad for you. It's dangerous. You need to stop it immediately. We had a whole generation of women who suffered from horrific hot flashes and menopausal symptoms overnight because they were told that their prescription medication was overtly dangerous. And I think now what we're seeing is another sort of pendulum. So for many years, hormone replacement therapy was deemed dangerous not appropriate for many women, carry too great a risk of 
breast cancer, too great a risk of potentially cardiovascular disease or stroke, and it was really underutilized. Now we're seeing the pendulum shift again, in part because people have taken the time to re-review that data, um, and I'm happy to talk about it in further detail and really acknowledge that what we panicked about was probably inappropriate panic, in part because of the study design, in part because of the demographic patient in that study, and because we have much better preparations. We're using completely different, we're using a completely different estrogen. We're using a natural micronized progesterone, which seemed to carry much less risk. So I think, I hope we are evolving to a place of re-embracing hormone replacement therapy, particularly for women who are really struggling with menopausal symptoms. It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I don't think we're ever going to get back to the place of every woman needs to be on hormone replacement therapy because they happen to be menopausal. But I think it can really be life-changing for many women. And uh, particularly when it comes to vasomotor symptoms or hot flashes, it's almost 100% in terms of an improvement. Yeah. And I think that's where the North American guidelines, the Menopause Society guidelines stand, isn't it? That its primary function is the management of vasomotor and stopping these heart flashes. And there are women, aren't there, Jessica, who are literally having multiple episodes of heart flashes in a day. Correct. Yeah. So there are stances now, we should absolutely consider it, but we should not be considering it for disease prevention. I think that there are many providers who think that may not be entirely the case. It does look like there's some benefit in terms of cardiovascular disease with the transdermal estrogen and micronized progestin. There may be some benefit in terms of dementia, although I don't think we have great data yet to support that. But their recommendation and conclusion is use it for patients suffering from severe vasomotor symptoms, but don't give it to women under the assumption that their life life expectancy is going to improve or they're going to have less of a risk of certain comorbidities comorbidities down the road. Yeah, and I think that's a really calm and sensible approach towards this. I'm connected a lot to the UK and there it seems to be like every woman is on hormone replacement therapy, but not necessarily with the lifestyle interventions taken in. And often they're seeing, thinking they can take that and they don't need lifestyle, which is not the right way to go about this, is it? First of all, I would say that the the lifestyle interventions that we discuss, diet, mindfulness, we didn't talk much about exercise, but exercise, getting out, independent of an improvement in menopausal symptoms, have clearly been demonstrated to reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease, stroke, cancer, and dementia. It is, to me, it is a no-brainer that you focus on the big four, diet, exercise, sleep, and mindfulness or stress management. And- I think that's independent of whether or not you're perimenopausal, menopausal, trying to get pregnant. I think that applies at all stages of life. And even for a man as well, that those are equally as important. Absolutely. What I will say about hormone therapy is that I personally think it can be tremendously beneficial, not only for vasomotor symptoms, but many women report subjective, improved quality of life, better libido, less achiness, improved sleep on hormone hormone therapy. And unfortunately, because we have, it was the largest study funded by NIH ever, a study that 
in my opinion, was not the best studied design. And that in part was because the average age of the women in that study was 63. Many of the women had gone through menopause 10 years earlier and had been without hormones for an extended period of time. And were starting hormones after a long period of hormonal absence. Mm. And because that study really predominantly looked at equine estrogen, conjugated equine estrogen, which is not physiologic for human women, and medroxyprogesterone, which is a synthetic progesterone, I think that it's not an apples-to-apples comparison with the preparations that are available now. And it's going to be harder to get a study of the same magnitude like the NIH study funded again. So there are a lot of big question marks with hormone therapy. Does it reduce the risk of dementia? What is the true breast cancer risk associated with hormone therapy, which I think was vastly overestimated in the Women's Health Initiative study? And I think there's a lot of big question marks. So the information that we have available is clearly there's a benefit in vasomotor symptomatology with hormone therapy. And I would say that benefit is greater than any lifestyle intervention, although the lifestyle interventions are clearly important. Women who go on estrogen therapy who are having vasomotor symptoms feel better almost overnight. Yeah, yeah. I think the big question marks are what are the long-term health benefits? And I think that's a harder one to answer. And I think that's a very fair question, very fair way to answer this because you're right, the chance of getting such a big longitudinal trial and for things like dementia, we, we would really have to run that trial. It would have to be constructed into the times when women typically or anybody, males too, develop a dementia and Alzheimer's, which is not when we're 50, but when we're seven six late 60s seven 70s uh, and that's a long trial and i think the problem there is that because the average age of the women treated in the in women's health initiative was older and there was some small risk in, in breast cancer and in women on combination therapy we could talk about the difference yeah. in estrogen progesterone yeah. or the general feeling is not to use hormone therapy indefinitely. So yeah. we're re- there's been a push to consider it for women in their 40s and 50s who are perimenopausal, but not necessarily to continue it into your 70s or 80s. And that's another big question mark. I had a woman in my office yesterday who feels great on hormone therapy and she's 63 and she said, do I need to stop? And the answer is we don't know. Yeah. Yeah, and it, that must. And when you're a patient, that feels very uncertain territory. Yeah. You know, clinicians can't answer me. The scientific data is woolly and at times contradictory. And yeah. it leaves people going, I don't know. And I think that's when they become very open to influencers saying one thing or the other, which can create fear for women. It does. And I think a lot of it comes from physicians. There's this very paternalistic approach that we have to women. You can't take this because it's going to cause breast cancer. First of all, that's actually not true if you really look at the research. So even in the Women's Health Initiative where they were using uh, a synthetic product, first of all, women who were on estrogen alone, as so for your listeners, The reason we add progesterone to hormone therapy is because it helps protect the uterine lining against endometrial cancer. 
So if you have had a hysterectomy, you can take just estrogen without a progesterone. And in the Women's Health Initiative, women who had a hysterectomy who only took estrogen, that arm of the study did not have an increased risk of breast cancer. In fact, there were fewer cases of breast cancer. This widely embraced theory that estrogen is bad for breast cancer actually appears to not be true. But I have heard many practitioners say to women, you can't take hormone therapy because you have a family history of breast cancer or you will develop breast cancer. Number one, I think we have to arm women with the data, the accurate data. They have to know what the risk is. And number two, I think we have to re-educate clinicians. And at the end of the day, it's a choice like any other prescription medication. And I've had women say to me, okay, I understand the risk, but my quality of life is so miserable right now that I'm willing to assume whatever small risk is associated with combination hormone therapy. And I should say in the combination group and the women who had intact uterus who took estrogen and progesterone, there was a small increased incidence of breast cancer. And ultimately that was attributed to the progesterone. And as I said, we're not using that particular progesterone anymore. So it remains to be seen whether or not the natural progesterone products have more or less risk. But I think it's a, we have to educate clinicians. We have to educate patients. And then I think it's a very personal decision. It's very paternalistic to say you can't. Yeah, definitely. Because if you are struggling with vasomotor symptoms that impact every part of your life, then you absolutely want to change that. And I think that for some women, they do report feeling much better. How much of that beyond their vasomotor symptoms is a placebo or not is we don't know. We don't know. We don't know. And the yeah. brain is powerful. It can, without doubt, you're taking this, you feel better, your flashes are gone, and then you think, I feel better all around, everything's gone. So we don't actually know. So there's, it's hard to unpick sometimes placebo from actual change. I think that's true. And I think we may never have definitive answers when it comes things that are relatively subjective. But again, my experience has been most women with severe vasomotor symptoms feel better almost immediately with some estrogen. And that we know that you downregulate hormone receptors over time. And so hot flashes are not a life sentence. And most women can come off of hormone therapy after five or 10 years successfully and feel absolutely fine. Yeah. And that's also... Those options, as you say, that's a choice for women to have their decision and to talk it through with a a qualified, knowledgeable practitioner. And honestly, I think the biggest take home is we need more information. We need more research. We need more studies of of women, perimenopausal and menopausal women, looking at these newer products, looking at transdermal 17-beta-hydroxyestradiol, which is which is basically, we talk about bioidenticals, but identical to what our body produces. Yes. We, we need more trials looking at micronized progestin instead of medroxyprogesterone. We, 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 we do. We need more research in women. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we need more funds laid aside for women's health in general and to ask those questions around not just hormone therapy, but also why is the risk of Alzheimer's so much higher than women? It's not quite right to say they're living so much longer they're not living many more years longer than men today because men don't have the manual jobs that they once did so the life expectancy difference is 
a matter of years quite often in in Western developed societies. I think we also see that why do women have such high rates of arthritis? Why are they struggling with, why is there lots of factors like that, that we don't have an answer and osteoporosis, which skews heavily female too. How much of that is related to this menopausal change or what else is, what else might be going on? Right. I think women have more complicated lives in general. <laughs> yeah. We I think we both emotionally and hormonally are, the trajectory is just more complicated. Yeah. And it, unfortunately for many years that the response to that was leave women out of clinical trials because their hormonal fluctuations complicate the data. Yeah. Um, and so really, if you look at the history of clinical research, women have not been included in clinical research studies for very long. Yeah. And so there are a lot of we extrapolate a lot from male data, which is very problematic. Which was exactly what we did with cardiovascular disease yeah. and women's symptoms for heart attacks and strokes, which can look very different. And hence, women were sent away saying you've got stomach pain or... In- very yeah. different. Yeah. And we know cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in women. And for many years, I've seen women completely written off who has significant cardiovascular risk factors. You're a woman, you, you'll be fine, or your stomach pain is in your head. And we just are not anywhere near as proactive about preventing as we are in men. And it, it is it is unfortunate. I think it's on women to really, to campaign and to get involved and to go into research and, and change the landscape. But there, are, in terms of menopausal health, there are a lot of, there are still a lot of unknowns. You look at this, at the Women's Health Initiative, it's 20 years later and we're still asking, listen, I think it's great that we've gone back and looked at the data and said, okay, maybe we dropped the gun here. Maybe we shouldn't have extrapolated to younger women. Maybe we should have looked at another hormonal preparation, but we should have clearer answers 20 years later. And it's frustrating that we don't. It is. I think that's where it leaves women today. So Jessica, where would you say, apart from starting with lifestyle, where do women need to start to get the support they need? I think it's really important that if you're struggling, that you tell a provider. I see so many women in their mid-40s and, and mid-50s come to me saying, I feel like I'm going crazy. I'm depressed. I can't sleep. I'm crying. Is it all in my head? Please talk to, to your internist, your gynecologist, and say, I'm struggling If you're in your mid to late 40s or early 50s and you're having new symptoms, mood symptoms, cardiovascular symptoms, focus symptoms, hot flashes, it's probably the change in hormones. And it's not, I had a woman come to me recently who said, I'm waking up in the middle of the night and my heart is racing and I was told this all my anxiety. And I said to her, what's going on with your, what's going on hormonally? I haven't had my period in a couple of months. That's not, that is a hormonally mediated symptom. So advocate. And if your provider isn't responsive, find a new provider. If you're blown off or you feel minimized, find a new provider. If you don't have a provider that says to you at the age of 45, 46, 47, what's happening with your hormonal health? How are you sleeping? Are you having hot flashes? Are you getting period? Find someone else. (laughs) Yeah, very true. How can people get in touch with you and learn more about the work that you and your team are doing? Easiest is probably our website, which is wisermccarthy, W-E-I-S-E-R, McCarthy, M-C-A-R-T-H-Y-M-D.com. 
Um, and our contact information is there. If you have questions, feel free to email us or call us. That's fantastic. We will put that in the show notes. Jessica, thank you so much for coming on and sharing such a comprehensive and and easily digestible journey through integrative medicine and a lot of clarity on hormone therapy. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Thriving Through Menopause. If you like this podcast episode, please hop over to my website, thrivethroughmenopause.com and rate and review it. And thank you if you do that, because it helps others to find the show. Want more news and views on perimenopause and menopause? Then sign up to my weekly newsletter, Heart of Menopause, over on Substack. Thank you once again for listening, and see you next week for another guest interview helping you to thrive through menopause.